Good morning, everyone. My name's Joe Agnell, and I know some of you, there's a lot of familiar faces. There's a lot of faces that I don't recognize. So I do want to take a moment to introduce myself and my family and what we're doing. Clock says 9.56. We have till noon, right, Gunner? Okay. So <clears throat> there we go. I'll bring the picture next time of Gunner hosing students off in case you're not sure what that looks like. Um, can we start the PowerPoint, please? And the next slide. So, oh, I guess I'm standing in front of it. Who are... Okay. Who are the Wagnells? Next slide. I'm Joe. I'm married to Esther, my wife. We are both missionary kids. I grew up in Kenya um, till I was 12. There's no room. There's no room. Is that better? No, the people over here can't see. I grew up in Kenya till I was 12. Esther grew up in Brazil till she was 16. Um, we met through college. Esther was my sister's roommate in college. Um, I was in the Navy at the time. You heard a little bit of the story from Gunner. Um, it has a happy ending. We did get married, and we have four kids. We got married 18 years ago, I think, if my math is right. And we have four kids, so I'll tell you a bit, little bit about our four kids. Next slide. Benjamin is our oldest. He's 14. He's our first teenager. Oh, man. You think Bud's is hard. Wait till you have teenagers. Wow. <laughs> Doesn't compare. He's our first high schooler. Um, we're homeschooling all of the kids. You'll see that. Um, he likes, he's very studious. He likes to play with Legos and figure out how things work as an engineer's mind. We went shooting yesterday out in the desert, and one of my friends brought um, an 1892 44 Winchester replica, and Benjamin said that was his favorite gun to shoot. He really enjoyed shooting that. It was lever action. It was, it was a lot of fun to shoot, and Benjamin enjoyed that one. So he enjoys shooting, too. Next slide. Esri is our 12-year-old. She's going on 21. I think she's dyslexic, so she thinks 12 is the same as 21. <laughs> she's in seventh grade, also being homeschooled, um, and really wants to try and keep up with her brother. She's very athletic and wants to be outside. She likes to go motorcycle riding with me. She keeps asking me, when are you going to buy me my own motorcycle so I can go riding with you every time? But that's Esri. Kezia, our third born, is nine She's our little princess girl. She's in fourth grade, and uh, she loves to play outside and play dress-up and um, put on costumes and pretend that she's a princess. And then Ethan is our youngest. He's six years old. He'll be seven here in December, so he's almost seven. He's in first grade, and he's just mischievous. He loves to irritate his older siblings and then pretend like, I didn't do anything. Why am I getting in trouble? Why are they mad at me? He also really likes cars. Anything doing with cars, that's his passion. You see any of these rice burners on the freeway and they have a loud exhaust and a spoiler on the back. He's like, whoa, that's a race car. That's really cool. 
Um, so that's Ethan. So what are the Wagnells doing? We moved to Kenya in 2011. We moved to a city called Nairobi. It's the capital city of, Nairo- of Kenya. Next slide. Nairobi, it's a modern city. Even though it's in Africa, we have running water, we have paved streets, we have electricity. Running water is on most of the time. The electricity is on most of the time. Um, come and visit, and I'll show you what most of the time means, what that feels like. There's about 6,000 people in this, or 6 million people in the city. The city is very small, so we have lots of congestion, lots of people traffic jams and car traffic jams. Um, there are several of the largest slums in all of the continent of Africa are found in Nairobi. So lots of people living in a very small area, and that's why you end up with 6 million people in this city. Next slide, please. We're serving with Africa Inland Mission, AIM. Next slide. What is AIM? AIM is a mission organization who had a heart, who has a heart, let me put it in the present tense, to reach all African peoples with the gospel. Their, our motto is Christ-centered churches amongst all African people. That's what we're passionate about. That's what AIMers are passionate about. There's about a thousand missionaries total across the entire organization, and all of those missionaries are working in Africa. They don't, we don't work anywhere else. We only work in Africa. Next slide. Within AIM, we have a division called AIM Air. So think of it as um, the, an, a private airline for the mission. We have six aircraft. Next slide. AIM Air has six aircraft, and we use them to support all of AIM's other ministries. Our motto is serving those who serve, so we're not directly out there church planting or evangelizing or seeing people in clinics as doctors, but we're there supporting those people that have been gifted that way so that we use the gifts that God's given us so that they can use the gifts that God has given them. We have six aircraft. We have three Cessna 206s. Next slide is a picture of a 206. It's a small airplane, um, one pilot, five passengers. And we also have, next slide, next slide. One more if it comes, there it is. We also have three Cessna 208 caravans. It's a little bit larger. It's a turboprop, one pilot, and 13 passengers. Um, and we keep these flying fairly frequently, fairly busy. So I have a video. The next slide is a video that kind of talks a little bit. Sorry, one extra slide. Um, so what does AIMAIR do? We fly missionaries. We fly pastors. We fly evangelists. We fly supplies. Um, we fly for the mission community. So not only AIM, but other mission agencies that have similar goals to AIM. AIM's goal being Christ-centered churches amongst all African people. So we won't fly for government agencies. We won't fly for the UN. There's lots of money to be made in some of that stuff, but that's not where we want to put our time and our effort. So what does it look like to be, um, or, or what does AMAIR's mission look like? So we, I have a three-minute video that kind of showcases that just a little bit, as much as you can see in three minutes. So if you next slide. So 
So that's just a very brief glimpse what AMAIR does. There's been some changes about COVID, but since time is limited, I don't want to talk about COVID and how that's impacted us. Needless to say, we're still flying airplanes. We're still doing everything that you see there in that video. Obviously, there's been some changes and some challenges along the way. So next slide. What do I do? I've told you about AIM. I've told you about AMAIR, but what do I do specifically? Um, as Gunnar alluded to, I like to fix things. Um, I think God's given me the gift to fix things, and so I want to use the gifts that he's given me. So I have an avionic shop um, in Nairobi, certified by the FAA, the U.S. Authority. It's also certified by the Kenya Aviation Authority. And so if there's wires going to or electricity going to something on any of those airplanes, then I work on it, I fix it, I maintain it, I replace it, I upgrade it. You guys get the picture. Next slide. This is our hangar. We have all of our maintenance happens here in Nairobi. We have two, AMAIR has two bases. We have a base here in Nairobi. We also have a base in Uganda. The majority of our flying happens out of Uganda because the majority of our flying is into South Sudan, Central African Republic, and Congo. And so it makes sense to base the airplanes closer to where our flying happens. But because of logistics and some other reasons, all of our maintenance happens in Nairobi. So that's where I'm based. Next slide. It's just another picture of the hangar. The really bright lights right in the middle of the picture. That's my workshop there up on the second floor. Next slide. We ha I have a lot of great test equipment. Some of it was there when I arrived 10 years ago. Um, God's provided, and I've been able to buy some more since I've been there. And I have probably the best avionic shop in all of Nairobi as far as test equipment and modern availability. And that's just truly a blessing from God. Next slide. Next slide. So since I'm here in the U.S., what has AMAIR been doing? We've been praying for the last six years that someone would come and join me in the avionic shop. And last October, someone else joined. So not the good-looking guy, but the guy with the red beard. He came out a year ago, and he's there in Kenya filling in for me right now. He's there long-term. So when, I go, when we go back to Kenya in March, he will still be there, and he will continue to serve with me. So that's been a huge answer to prayer. So that's a little bit about what I do, but what about Esther? Next slide. Um, didn't you notice that I said we have four kids and we're homeschooling? I'm sure some of you are familiar with the joys of homeschooling because of COVID and just the challenges that brings. But in case you're not convinced, next slide. Here is a list of everything that Esther does. I think it starts with wife and ends with homemaker number one and number 94. And if you bring out a magnifying glass, you can see the other 92 items there that are on that list. I might have repeated a couple things on that list, but I had to make a point. Um, Esther is our housing coordinator for the mission, so she takes care of all kinds of logistical things about housing and helping with that, plus all of her duties and responsibilities at home. So I couldn't do what I do in the hangar if Esther wasn't doing what she does in the home. And I just wanted to make that clear and to point that out, that Esther is just as busy, if not more busy and tasked as I am. Next slide. So we do have a display table out where the donuts are, so don't worry about the donuts. Just come out. And we have some literature out there. We also have a sign-up sheet. We send um, a prayer letter out about every quarter. Um, 
maybe not quite every quarter. Um, depends on how busy we are. And if you would like to receive that, um, you can write down your email address. We do mail it out as well. So if you don't have an email address, we will send you a physical paper copy. But that's more expensive for us, and we prefer the email, obviously. Um, so I think that's enough introduction for who we are, what we're doing. Um, let me see if I can get my... I didn't bring my normal Bible um, home because it just it weighs too much. And now my Bible on my phone is not cooperating. There we go. If you have your Bibles, turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Bibles or your devices... Um, it's really a blessing that we have God's Word so available to us in our mother tongue. One of our Kenyan pastors about two years ago, they finished the translation of the New Testament into his mother tongue, the Rendili language, and they had a two-week celebration to celebrate receiving the Bible in their mother tongue. They know English, they know several other languages that the Bible is in, but to be able to read the Bible in their mother tongue was just such a huge joy. And just to see them talking about that, it makes everything worthwhile. Lamentations, chapter 3. I want to talk about God's faithfulness this morning. Um, I, don't, I, I would love to read the whole chapter, or at least the introduction to the chapter, because I don't like to pull out a couple verses, then you have no idea why these verses are here, or what the person is talking about. I don't have time to do that. I have several other passages. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to kind of summarize where we're at. I would highly encourage you, go back and read all of Lamentations chapter 3 on your own this afternoon, and see if my summary is correct. Um, be like the Bereans, and study and see if what I'm telling you is correct according to the word of God. The word of God is our truth. It is the standard that we have to use. Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. It was written during the Babylonian captivity. So what happened is King Nebuchadnezzar, he brought an army. He conquered Jerusalem. He destroyed the army. He broke down the city walls. He went into the city and he plundered the city and took everything good that was in the city and took it back to Babylon. Everything good meaning anything valuable like the, the temple instruments that were in the temple, the gold, the silver. He also took all of the, the young people that showed potential. So think of Daniel and his three compatriots that we read a book about in the book of Daniel. Jeremiah is left in the city with those who are outcast, those who were unwanted, those who were beaten. Chapter 3 is the story about one of the soldiers who was part of the war. They've lost the war. They've been beaten. They've been downcast. They've been trodden over. And that's what we read about in chapter 3 of Lamentations. Start at verse 16 with me. He ground my teeth in gravel. He trampled me in the dust. I am deprived of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. This doesn't sound like this soldier is in a very good place. So I said, my endurance has expired. 
I have lost all hope of deliverance from the Lord. We've experienced COVID for the last 18 months. A lot of things have changed. There's been a lot of upheaval. There's been a lot of difficult decisions, a lot of difficult things to deal with. That's kind of like where this soldier is at. Maybe the soldier is even quite a bit more extreme. Go back and read the first verses that I didn't read and see what he's experienced and see how that matches up with what you've experienced over the last couple of years. Verse 19, remember my impoverished and homeless condition, which is a bitter poison. I continually think about this, and I am depressed. So he readily admits that he's depressed. He's in a bad place. But then notice in verse 21, there's a contrast here. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So what does he call to mind that gives him hope? Hope is something that we don't have yet. It's something that we're longing for, wishing to desire. When Bible talks, the Bible talks about hope, it's not something that may not happen. It's something that's sure. It's just something that we haven't received yet. So we have the hope of Jesus Christ coming again. Christ has not come again yet, but our, our hope, our sure knowledge is that he is going to come again. So what does this soldier say? What is his hope? What does he call to mind that gives him hope? In verse 22, it says, The Lord's loyal kindness never ceases. His compassions never end. They are fresh every morning. Your faithfulness is abundant. My portion is the Lord, I have said to myself, so I will put my hope in him. So here we have a soldier. He's been beaten down. He's been outcast. He's been left behind, thrown out with the refuge, if I can put it that way. He's depressed. He's gone through all of these bad things. But this is what gives him hope. Let me read it again. The Lord's loyal kindness never ceases. His compassions never end. They are fresh every morning. Your faithfulness, God's faithfulness, is abundant. My portion is the Lord, I have said, so I will put my hope in him. So, We went through COVID in Kenya as well, and in looking at that and thinking about that and thinking about some situations that happened at work, I was thinking about God's faithfulness. Now, what does it mean that God is faithful? When we read in here, the Lord's loyal kindness never ceases. His compassions never end. They are new every morning. What does that really mean? And I'm not a Greek scholar, but I did go to seminary, and I did take Greek. And so I know a little bit of Greek, and I don't want to bore you. Um, I don't want anyone to fall asleep and get hosed down by Gunner. <laughs> but our English language is deficient when it comes to describing certain things. The Greek, in the New Testament Greek, there's at least eight words for knowledge that I'm aware of. And I'm not a very good Greek scholar, so there could be more. But there's eight that I know of. And I want to tell you about two of those words because I want to tell you how that relates to knowledge and how we interact with it. So when I say knowledge in the English language, we have knowledge and we use it for everything. In the Greek, we have a word called um, gnosis, gnoskis. And that has the idea of knowledge that you learn from experience or learn from doing. There's an experiential 
relational element to that knowledge. We also have a knowledge called oida in Greek. That's a knowledge that you get. It's a head knowledge. You get it from just someone telling you something, coming to a sermon, reading something in your Bible. So when we read in Lamentations 3 that God's faithful, now we have an oida knowledge of God's faithfulness, but we haven't experienced it just by reading it. Let me give you an example. I have a brother-in-law who's a doctor. You've all heard the term that doctors practice, right? Well, let me tell you what that means. A patient comes into my brother-in-law's office, and they need a procedure, and my brother-in-law has never done this procedure. He pulls out his phone, he gets on YouTube, and he says, oh, here's a doctor that's done this procedure. Let me watch and see what the doctor does. I'm not making this up. This is completely true. He watches the procedure, and he's like, oh, that looks pretty simple. I can do that. So the doctor watches this YouTube video, and now he has the oida knowledge. He has the head knowledge of how to do this procedure. He now takes this oida knowledge, this head knowledge, and he performs this procedure on his patient. He practices on his patient. And now he has the gnosko knowledge in addition to the oida knowledge. Is everyone with me? (laughs) Trust your doctor. Keep your friends close and your doctors closer. So how does that relate to faithfulness? We have this oida knowledge now, because we read Lamentations 3, that God's faithfulness is everlasting. It's new every morning. It never ends. So how do we apply that? How do we use that and turn that into gnosko knowledge of God's faithfulness? All we have to do is look back in our past, and we can see God working in miraculous ways in our life, and we can see God worked here, God worked here, God worked here. That's the relational, that's the experiential knowledge, gnosko, of God's faithfulness. I'm not very old yet, but my memory is not very good, especially when it comes to God's faithfulness. And I forget really quickly. As soon as this present catastrophe that I'm dealing with is over. I say, thank you, Lord, for taking care of that. And as soon as the next catastrophe comes, I'm like, how is this going to be solved? What's going to happen? I've forgotten just yesterday, God was faithful and he did what he said he was going to do. So what does the Bible tell us about our memory and remembering God's faithfulness? In the Bible, people would set up memorials to remember God's faithfulness, to remember something that God had done or something that God had said that was significant. We have lots of examples. In Genesis 9, we have the rainbow. It's a memorial. It's a reminder to all of mankind that God will never again destroy the earth with a flood. So when we see that rainbow, it serves as a reminder to bring back to our memory what God's promise was. We have the Passover in Exodus 12 that the Jews still celebrate. It's a reminder of what God did, how the angel of death passed over the households that obeyed and put the blood of the lamb on the doorstep. In Leviticus 23, 
the Israelites celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a yearly feast that they celebrate to remind them of what they did or what God brought them through in the wilderness of living in tents for 40 years and how God sustained them through that. There's a whole list of them. In Esther 9, there's the Feast of Purim. Again, it's a reminder to everyone that celebrates that of how God miraculously protected his people. The name of God isn't even mentioned in the book of Esther. But we see God working through that circumstance to protect, to bring about, to honor his promise to Abraham that he would rise up this nation. And so they celebrate the Feast of Purim to remember what God did. It's a reminder of what God did. It's, these examples aren't only in the Old Testament. In Luke 22, the good doctor tells us that the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's a reminder to us believers. Why? Why do we take the Lord's Supper? A lot of churches that I go to, they'll have a table in the front and says, this do in remembrance of me. It's to remember what Christ did for us at the cross. So we have lots of examples in the scripture of memorials, people doing things or setting up things to remember God's faithfulness, to remind them of God's faithfulness. So see, I'm not the only one who has a bad memory. I'm not the only one who can't remember the faithfulness that God demonstrated, showed me just yesterday. So we have these memorials that show us that. Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to have to summarize and tell you where we're at in the book of Joshua. I'm going to give you a little bit of history as well. Please go back and read the first three chapters of Joshua. The Israelites are brought out of the land of Egypt miraculously, Ten plagues, finally Pharaoh lets them go. They cross over the Red Sea on dry ground. The water comes back and drowns the entire Egyptian army that was chasing them. Egypt was the superpower of the day. There was no other nation as powerful as Egypt at the day. God wiped out their army with one miraculous act and saved his people. From there, they go to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. And he promises that he's going to bring them into the land of Canaan. And he's going to give it to them. And the inhabitants there, God's going to take care of them for them. They will not have to worry about it. After traveling through the desert, they get to the border of Canaan and they send out 12 spies. And the spies go into the land and they say, and they come back and they bring a report to Moses and everyone else. And they say, yep. God was right. This land is awesome. Look at these bunches of grapes. We can hardly carry them. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But it's also full of giants and really strong people. There's no way we can go in there and defeat them. They had just witnessed God destroying the Egyptians in the Dead Sea. And they've already forgotten how God miraculously was faithful to his promise They've already forgotten that. And they're saying, there's no way we can do that. Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies say, hey, yeah, there's giants there, but with God's help, we can do this. But who did they listen to? As a whole, the nation of Israel listened to the 10 spies and God punished them for their unbelief. He said, because you won't believe, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years 
And none of you are going to see the promised land. None of you are going to enter the promised land. I'm going to give that to your children instead. So they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. All of the old people die. Now it's only the children. They come back to the promised land. Moses sinned. He disobeyed God. And so God says, Moses, you're going to see the promised land, but you're not going to enter into the promised land. I'm going to raise up Joshua. He's going to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land, but you're not going to do it. So Moses has been with the people of Israel for 40 years now. He's been their rock. He's been steadfast. He's been the mouthpiece of God from Mount Sinai coming down and telling the people what God wants them to do. And now suddenly Moses is out of the picture, and in comes Joshua. That's where we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 1. And what's Joshua saying? Over and over and over in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua is saying, God, I'm scared. I can't do this by myself. And God over and over says, be of good courage. I am with you. You got this because I'm with you. That's the the theme of Joshua chapter 1. And then Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sends out two spies this time. He figured 12 spies didn't work out so well 40 years ago. Let me just send two spies, and they go... And they spy out the city of um, Jericho. Thank you. And Rahab, the harlot, helps them escape from the soldiers in Jericho. And they come back and they give a report to Joshua. And Joshua says, all right, let's do this. But he's still doubting. He's still saying, God, I can't do this on my own. The people, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to follow me. Look at all of the things that you did through Moses. Um, I haven't done any of that. They're not going to believe me. And God tells Joshua, obey me, have faith in me, trust me, trust my faithfulness, and I will bring you through this. I will bring you through and I will help you achieve what I've promised. So in chapter 3 of Joshua, we have the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. The Jordan River is in a flood state. That means there's tons and tons of water flowing through it. And now there's a million people plus that have to cross over this Jordan River. There's no bridge. And the people are saying, how are we going to get across? Joshua is saying, God, how are we going to get across? And God says, just trust me and we'll get across the river. So God miraculously provides again. And the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant. And as soon as their feet touch the, the edge of the water, then the river starts piling up on the, the upriver side and the water continues to flow on the downriver side. How many, by show of hands, how many people have ever crossed a river before or a stream or a brook? That's a good number. How many have gotten their feet wet while doing that? Great, good number too. By a show of hands, how many people have had the river stop flowing as soon as their feet got wet? No, that's not, that's not normal, right? That's pretty miraculous. God did it in the Red Sea. He let them cross on dry ground. He does it again in Joshua 3. And the entire nation crosses over on dry ground across this raging river. That's what the scripture tells us. So that's what I believe happened. That brings us to chapter 4.
starting at verse 1. When the entire nation was on the other side, so now they're on the east side of the river, they're no longer on the west side, they're on the east side where Jericho is. The Lord told Joshua, select for yourselves 12 men from the people, one per tribe. Instruct them, pick up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests stand firmly, and carry them over with you and put them in the place where you camp tonight. Seems pretty simple. Pick up 12 stones, right? 12 stones from the middle of the riverbed that God miraculously stopped. Verse 4, Joshua summoned the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one per tribe. Joshua told them, go in front of the ark of the Lord your God to the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to put a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the Israelite tribes. The stones will be a reminder to you when your children ask someday, why are these stones important to you? Tell them how the water of Jordan stopped flowing before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the water of the Jordan stopped flowing. These stones will be a lasting memorial for the Israelites. Verse 8. The Israelites did just as Joshua commanded. They picked up 12 stones according to the number of Israelite tribes from the middle of the Jordan as the Lord had instructed Joshua. They carried them over with them to the camp and they put them there. Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan in the very place where the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant stood. They remain there to this very day. That doesn't mean that they're there right now. That means that they remain there until when the book of Joshua was written, they were still there. So I'm not a Baptist preacher, but I want to bring three points out from this passage that we read in Joshua 4. The first is to remember what God has done. In verse 7 it says, These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So I take that as a principle that we should set up memorials in our lives so that we can remember what God has done. We can read Lamentations 3. We can have that weight of knowledge that God is faithful. We can see God working in our lives. We can have that gnosko knowledge that God is faithful. But if you don't remember, then all of that knowledge does you no good. So in verse 7, Joshua, or God tells Joshua, set up these stones as a memorial so that people remember. Can anyone tell me what this is? A butter knife? It's my sermon prop. I brought a prop as my sermon prop. It's an airplane propeller. And this is a memorial to God's faithfulness. Um, For those who aren't in aviation, it's not normal for this to be curved like this. It should be straight, just in case there was any question. But I want to tell you a story about God's faithfulness and what this propeller means, and what it reminds us of. I told you that I grew up in Kenya till I was 12. My dad was a pilot with Amer. He flew for Amer when I was a kid. And one morning, he took off out of the airport. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details, but there's a mountain range right outside the airport. They didn't have GPS um, in their airplanes, and so they relied on maps to, for their navigation. My dad made a mistake. He ended up in the wrong place. And the clouds were low on this mountain. He looked at his map. He said, I think I'm here. Um, I'm not supposed to fly in the clouds, but 
I have, I'm out of options. I'm in a valley that I can't turn around in. It's too narrow. So I'm going to climb up into the clouds and I'm going to go this direction and I'm going to climb to this altitude and I should make it over the top of this mountain. So he did that. He put the airplane to full power, full continuous power. He climbs up into the clouds and about two minutes after he goes into the clouds, branches start hitting his windscreen. Are there any Vietnam veterans here? You're not allowed to answer, but has anyone else had branches hit the windscreen while you've been flying an airplane? No show of hands. I've had some Vietnam vets say, yeah, we had branches hitting our windscreen, so I have to exclude them. Because that's not normal. It's not normal for branches to be hitting the windscreen on your airplane, just in case you were wondering. That's not normal. As soon as these branches start hitting the windscreen... My dad, he pulls back on the yoke. That's to make the airplane fly up. And the airplane responds. It flies up out of the branches a little bit. And my dad has his first thought. He has two thoughts during this crash. His first thought is, this airplane is still flying. And then the branches, even though the airplane came up, the branches closed in over the windscreen, and the, wind, and the airplane got dark. Now there's branches all around the airplane. And my dad's second thought is this is what it's like to die in an airplane crash. So now he's had two thoughts. This It all happened fast enough that he's had time for two thoughts. His first, this airplane is still flying. The second, this is what it's like to die in a car in an airplane accident. And then he stopped. And he's looking around, and he's a passenger in the right seat next to him, and he has three passengers behind him. There's four passengers in the airplane. All of the passengers are okay. He was going from Nairobi into Central African Republic. It's a long flight. He has wings that are full of avgas, more flammable than gasoline. Not a single drop of that avgas has been spilt out of the airplane. There's no danger from fire. What's happened is he's run into a ridge on this mountain, and the ridge is coming out from, it's a spur ridge, it's coming out from the main mountain. The ridge is at the same angle that he was climbing at. If he had been to the left or to the right of the ridge, he would have missed this ridge, the spur, and he would have flown into the main mountain. If he would have been lower, he would have hit the ridge before the top of it, and he would have crashed into the mountain. If he would have been higher, he would have flown into the main mountain past the ridge and would have crashed. So is it exactly the right heading, exactly the right altitude, climbing at exactly the right angle? to intersect with this ridge which is in the clouds and he can't see it. When he pulled back on the stick, on the yoke, to make the airplane go up, the ridge continues. He intersected with the ridge at the right as it's come, imagine it comes up and then it levels off a little bit. He's intersected right where the ridge is leveled off and it's going up at the same angle that he's climbing. That's when the branches start hitting the windscreen. The ridge goes up a little bit. There's a 10-foot ledge 10-foot cliff in this ledge. When he pulls back on the yoke, the nose of the airplane comes up, and that's when he goes up and over this 10-foot ledge. If he wanted to pull back on the yoke, he would have hit this ledge, and it would have been all over. As he comes up over this cliff, this 10-foot cliff on this ledge, the airplane settles down into the brush a little bit, and the brush is about one inch to one and a half inches in diameter. It's just small brushes. No big trees, nothing big that's going to tear the airframe apart. Um, that's when the branches close in over the screen, 
and the screen gets dark. If you would have continued farther, about another 50 yards in front of them, there's big trees um, that would have torn the airplane apart, um, spilled the avgas, probably a fireball, and then everybody dies in flaming death barbecue. So we have, just from that, we have many miraculous um, coincidences showing God's faithfulness. But then we have the propeller. Normally it would sit on the airplane like this. So I'm in the airplane, I'm flying this way. This is the leading edge, so it's spinning around like this. If you feel the leading edge of the, air, of the propeller, it's smooth. That means that the propeller never hit the ground. If it hits the ground, it's pitted like someone has taken a sandblaster to the propeller, um, and it would be rough. So this propeller never hit the ground. The only reason it's bent is because it hit the bushes. But which way is the propeller bent? Is it bent forward or is it bent backward? It's bent backward. When the Kenya authorities came to investigate the accident, they said, no, something about your story doesn't make sense. You had an engine failure, and you're trying to cover up an engine failure. Because what happens is if the engine is making power, that propeller is pulling the airplane through the air, right? So as soon as it hits something more solid than air, like branches, then it's going to bend that propeller forward as it pulls the airplane into the bush. Can you visualize that? But which way is this propeller bent? It's bent backwards. So they bend backwards when the engine is not making power, and the weight of the airplane, the momentum of the airplane, pushes the propeller into something more solid than air, and it bends the propeller backwards. So we can look at the propeller, see it's obviously bent backwards, and conclude, oh, the engine must not have been working. That was the conclusion of the Kenya authorities. But my dad said, no, I was at full continuous power when I went into the mountain when the branches first started hitting the windscreen. I had time for two thoughts. I didn't have time to do anything else. When they took pictures of the controls, the throttle for the engine was back at idle. If the throttle had been forward, if it would have been at continuous power like it was when my dad was climbing, then they would have gone into those trees that were just in front of the big branches another 50 yards. But the Kenya authorities didn't believe my dad, and they said, we want to see that engine run. So they took the engine off of the airplane, and they put it on a test stand in the hangar, and they ran that engine. That engine worked just fine. There was no problem with that engine. So in the time that my dad had time, or in the time for two seconds, or two thoughts, somehow the power was pulled to that engine. My dad doesn't remember doing it. Maybe he did it. He doesn't remember. But notice that it's bent backwards. So that means as soon as it started hitting the brush, the engine was already at idle. So I think, my dad thinks, that God miraculously pulled the power to the engine because the engine was at full power because he was climbing, but the propeller says that the engine was at idle when the accident started. That happened just like that. Time for two thoughts. So my dad keeps this in his living room as a memorial to remind himself of God's faithfulness. There's so many miraculous circumstances, coincidences, I don't believe in coincidences, about this story that it showcases God's faithfulness. And that brings me to my second point. My first point was to remember what God's done. We need memorials. Let me leave it over here. The second point is it becomes a basis for sharing our faith. 
in verses 6 and 7. It says, these stones will be a reminder to you. When your children ask someday, why are these stones important? Tell them how the water of the Jordan stopped flowing before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan, the water of the Jordan stopped flowing. These stones will be a lasting memorial. So it acts as a basis for sharing our faith, for telling others about the faithfulness of God. So when people come into my dad's house, they see this propeller I was like, why do you have a bent propeller in your living room? Do you know anyone else that has a bent propeller in your living room? In their living room? No, it's something unusual. It's something unique. It's something that serves as um, a, a signpost to say, this is what God did. Let me tell you about what God did. So what signposts do you have in your lives? What things can you point at and say, this is what God did in my life. Let me tell you about it. That's the second reason. First, to remind us because I have a bad memory. I'm not going to put that on all of you. I have a bad memory. I can't remember. And secondly is is a signpost to tell others, hey, let me tell you about what God did in my life. My third point is it acts as a signpost to a lost world that needs to know about a Savior. We didn't read verse 24 of chapter 4, but it says, He has done this, stopped up the Jordan River, brought the Israelites across, this miraculous thing, so that all the nations of the earth might recognize the Lord's power and so that you might always obey the Lord your God. God does these miraculous things in our life so we have a signpost, so we can share them, and as proof to validate what God has told us is true in His Word. And then that... It shows the world what God is doing is true and just. I'm running out of time here, but I have one more story that I have to tell you. We left to come back to the U.S. from Kenya in May. In March, I got a notification from the FAA that they were going to do their audit. Um, I'd been communicating with them, hoping to get it done before I left so that I wasn't leaving this with Daniel, a new guy who's never dealt with the inspectors before. Got the FAA inspection taken care of. I've been emailing with the, the Kenya authorities since January of this year. And it's kind of a slow process. Um, my ex- certificate is going, from Kenya is going to expire in May, about the same time that we're leaving. And I'm trying to get the inspection scheduled um, prior to us leaving and get it taken care of with the inspectors so that everything can be left in good order for Daniel so it won't be something that he has to worry about while I'm gone. So finally I get a letter and they say, yep, we're going to come from this state to this state and they schedule the whole week. I have a really small shop. In the past, usually it's a one-day affair. And so I talked to one of our employees who knows some of the inspectors, and I was like, can you reach out unofficially to the inspectors and find out what the actual deal is? What are they planning? What are they expecting to do? And so she did that for me, and they said, they're going to come on Wednesday. They expect to complete the inspection all in one day, and then they'll be done. So I say, great. That's, that's what I wanted to hear. This Wednesday is about two weeks before we're supposed to leave, Um, to come back to the U.S., so it's tight, but I have enough time to get it completed. 
they show up Wednesday, and I have a bunch of questions about one of my manuals that I have, and they graciously help me, and they say, well, this is what we're looking for. And we spend all of Wednesday morning going through this manual, which was above and beyond their duties. They didn't. It's not their job description. Normally, you send it back and forth, and it becomes a long process. I send it to them. They say, no, this isn't what we're looking for, so they send it back. I make edits, and that goes back and forth several times. So Wednesday morning, we spend all morning working on this manual. They graciously help me out. By lunchtime, they're happy with the manual. I'm happy with the manual, and we can proceed with the inspection. We break for lunch. After we come back from lunch, they start looking at some other things, and they say, Joe, the regulation says this, and we don't see that in any of your manuals. Joe, the regulation says this, and we don't see that in any of your manuals. Over and over and over, that's what's happening Wednesday afternoon. So Wednesday afternoon, at the end of Wednesday, Wednesday evening, at the end of the workday, they say, we're because we spent so much time in the morning working on your manual, we're going to come back on Thursday. But we have some concerns about what we've seen so far. It looks like you have a lot of work to do to bring the manual or to bring your your uh, avionics shop up to meet the requirements of the regulation. So I close our inspection in prayer and they had a, a colleague who was in the hospital for COVID. I prayed for him. And then I also prayed that God would be glorified in this inspection and that he would uh, bring this inspection to an end that would honor and glorify him. The two inspectors are not believers, but it's very culturally accepted in Kenya to open and close meetings in prayer. Um, that's normal, even if you're not a believer. So the inspectors leave, and me and my colleagues, we look at the regulation, we look at some of the stuff, and we say to each other, we don't think the regulation is saying what the inspectors say it's saying. Let's take this evening, Wednesday evening, we'll reread the regulation, and we'll meet Thursday morning and see what our conclusion is. So we do that, and we come back Thursday morning, and we have a little powwow before the inspectors get there, and we meet, and we say, we think we're doing everything that the regulation requires of us. We don't think that these areas that the inspectors um, are dinging us for apply in our situation. But now we're stuck in a quandary because the inspectors are the official interpreters. They are the authority. So how do we approach them and say, you guys are wrong, we're right? That never goes over well. Whether you're in the U.S. or in Kenya, that's just that's doesn't go well. And so this is what I said. I said, this is a God-sized problem. This isn't something that we can do on our own. The reason I'm getting choked up is because I followed that by saying, we need a miracle, but I don't believe God's going to do a miracle. I've seen God work miraculously in my life. And I come to this obstacle, this stumbling block. And I recognize we only can get through this with a miracle from God. Only God can take care of this. And I follow up and say, he's, he's capable. He's powerful enough. 
My God's big enough to do this, but I don't believe he's going to do this. That's what I said to my team. The inspectors were late that morning. They were supposed to show up at 9. They showed up at 11. And they said, before we continue the inspection, we need to talk to you about what happened on Wednesday afternoon. And so we get together, and they say, we had an unscheduled meeting with our boss this morning, and that's why we're late. We had to talk about some stuff. While we were in this meeting with our boss, our boss is asking how the inspection at Amer is going. And so we started telling them about what we had found on Wednesday afternoon. And their boss, the inspector's boss, says to them, no, you guys are misinterpreting the, the regulation. This is what the regulation means here. This is what this means. And so all of the things that we had read in the regulation, the way that Amer had understand it, the boss at the inspector's boss is saying exactly the same thing. And so the inspectors came back and they said, this is highly unusual. This never happens. We weren't even supposed to have this meeting with our boss. And then our boss kind of leads us, guides us where we're supposed to go with this. And you know what the inspectors attributed that to? They attributed it to my prayer Wednesday night when I closed the meeting. They said, this is God. This is only because of what you prayed on Wednesday. So the inspectors recognized, non-believers recognized God's power in that situation, God working miraculously in that situation. And while I'm telling my teammates, God is big enough to do this, but I don't believe he can do this, I don't believe he's going to do this, God is doing it. He's working in that situation right as I'm saying those words. Let me tell you how little I felt. I'm glad that we serve a big God. So as I reflect on that and my own failures and my own lack of faith, does that change God's faithfulness? Does that change what Lamentations 3 tells us, that God's faithful every day? It's so abundant, it's new every morning. Does that change my experience of how God's worked miraculously in my life? in all of the situations that I encounter and deal with, God's faithful regardless. So how am I going to remember his faithfulness? And if I'm remembering his faithfulness, more importantly, how is that going to change how I interact with a fallen world? The fallen world can see it. They see this isn't normal. That's God right there. They can see it. So how do I interact If God is faithful, and he is, then how does that change how we live our lives? If God is faithful, and he is, then how does that change how we share the great commission that was given to the church? That's not just for missionaries. That's not just for pastors. That's for every individual in the church. Not just this body, but the church body at whole, the entire church body across the entire world has responsibility to the Great Commission. So if God is faithful, what's he say in Matthew 28? 
And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So if God is faithful, if God is with us, if we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, then what are we afraid of? Why do we not live like God is faithful? Why do I not live like God is faithful? Let me not put that on you. Let me put it on myself. I'm preaching to myself here. Why don't I live like God is faithful? Why don't I have more memorials in my life to remind me of God's faithfulness? We have the example in Scripture. So my closing thought is, what is you reflect on God's faithfulness in your life? You reflect on that oida knowledge as you read Lamentations 3. You reflect on that gnosko knowledge as you see how God's work miraculously in situations in your lives. How are you going to use that knowledge to further God's kingdom and God's glory? How does that interact? It doesn't matter all the knowledge in our head. It doesn't matter how much knowledge we have if we don't use it for God's glory. God's given it to us for a reason. So let's remember his faithfulness and use his faithfulness as we interact with people. Let me pray just really briefly. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you for the beautiful creation that you've put us in. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that we have in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the examples that we have from Scripture. I pray, Lord, that we would remember your faithfulness, remember your greatness, remember who you are, and we allow that to work in our lives as we interact with people. And others would see the light of Christ that lives in us and desire that. We'd use that as a tool for the gospel. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.